You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the Lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites are trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. I know we got a lot of people out of town, but it's great to be together. And uh, we're going to be talking about the book of Exodus a little bit today and the story of Exodus. As so we, we thought we would show that video just to give you some of the textual background. There's so much to the story. Well, we're just going to kind of look at a little bit of it. Uh, but it's a great uh, cosmic, uh, huge, epic tale of God's people there, the, the story of Exodus. I um, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. How many of you are still eating leftovers? All right. Awesome. I love Thanksgiving leftovers. We actually have a lot of Thanksgiving leftovers this year. Uh, It was kind of a happy, sad Thanksgiving for us because our best friends, uh, Marshall and Sean Mead, we've been having both of us have have had family in other states. And so for the last 20 years or so, we've had every Thanksgiving together and they moved away on us. 
And uh, so they weren't with us this Thanksgiving. We had invited another family to come over, and they had sickness, so they weren't able to come. So it was just our family. Had a great time together, but we have a lot of leftovers to enjoy uh, for weeks to come. You can just turn me down or whatever. We did check this, but somehow it always sounds different once you get into the lesson. It's super ringy. Uh, So we are doing a series right now called Between Two Trees. I'll explain that in a minute, but it's really talking about the different big stories of the Bible. And uh, this scripture here, 1 Corinthians 10, helps us to understand how we should understand and how we should... uh... Okay, Uh, are we good? This scripture helps us understand how we should... uh, uh, process these things, how we should understand these things. It says these things, these things, these stories of the Bible happen to those people are examples. They were written down to teach us because we live in a time when all these things of the past have reached their goal. So we, we uh, believe that we live in a time between two trees. The Bible has a picture of this tree in the Garden of Eden in the beginning of the story and a tree in paradise at the end of the story, the tree of life. And we are in this time between the two. And we specifically live in a time where all these stories have kind of reached their culmination. And so we'll see that as we kind of examine these different parts of the story um, on our way. We can't obviously cover everything in the Bible, but we're hitting some of these big things. We talked about that first tree in the Garden of Eden. And then last week we talked about Abraham. And uh, I'll remind you a little bit about what we said about that today. We're talking about the Exodus. And then we're going to hit the exile, Messiah, and then finally end with Uh, the Garden City in the book of Revelation. So today we're talking about the Exodus. As I mentioned, uh, this story has so much to it, so many epic parts of uh, Exodus. Uh, I'm going to kind of remind you of a few things, and if these are not familiar to you, don't worry too much about it. Um, You know, you can dig into your Bible and learn this on your own, but you're going to get something out of what we we talk about today. Um, It always helps. I don't know about you, but I like seeing maps of what I'm reading about. It helps me just to kind of get a sense of the neighborhood uh, and and kind of context and and that kind of thing. So this is a map of what's called the Near East, the ancient Near East. And uh, if you might remember from high school, the Fertile Crescent right here, uh, that's that area. And uh, so just kind of talking about where some of these stories happened and what we talked about. So the Garden of Eden is... It's somewhere in this area. We don't know where it mentions two of the rivers that are here, the Tigris and Euphrates, and it mentions two other rivers. But it's somewhere in that fertile crescent where uh, history tells us agriculture began. That's the first place uh, where humans learned to domesticate crops and things like that. And what we learned about in that story uh, was that, that God had a a plan for humans to share in his divine work in the world, that he's a cultivator and he was taking what's uh, what's wild and, and what's chaos and making it good and making it beautiful. He's a creator. He's a cultivator. And so he invited humans to share in that, to be fruitful and to multiply and to be image bearers wherever they go, to be the image of God. And yet humans also, we rebel against God and we choose our own will over his will. And so we, when we do that, we miss out on his divine plan for us. And so that's a super important thing. Satan, even in the very beginning, said, oh, 
uh, God is trying to keep something from you. God wants, you're going to miss out if you follow God's plan, is what Satan said. And isn't that the same thing Satan tells us today? Like teenagers, doesn't Satan tell you the exact same thing? If you follow God's plan, you're going to miss out. I know that's what he's telling you even now. You know, I remember when I was in high school, it's like, oh, but I, I want to follow God, but then I'll miss out on the parties or the, you know, the, the pleasure or the drinking or the, you know, sex or whatever, you know, whatever it is, fill in the blanks. But we feel like we're going to miss out. And yet God's plan is a perfect plan. And it's actually the best plan for us because he's the creator for us. So that's some of the stuff that we talked about. But humans are fallen. And so we need something. We need a savior. We got a little glimpse of that uh, there in, in Genesis when, when Jesus, uh, God says there's going to be someone who's going to destroy evil. He's going to destroy the source of evil. And that's, we believe, is Jesus. Then uh, Abraham. Abraham's from here. Uh, this is where he grew up in the town of Ur, city of Ur. That's near ancient Sumer, if you remember uh, your, your ancient world history. It's kind of the first big city that we know of. So, so Abraham was kind of part of that, part of that ancient society, part of that, that thing. God calls him to leave his family, leave his homeland, and go to a land he's promised him, which is all the way over here. And, uh, you know, that looks like uh, maybe a short distance on this, but this is 300 mile, uh, 500 miles right there. So you can tell if that's 500 miles, this is a long ways away on foot and with camels and, you know, your family and all that. So, so Abraham, it says, obeyed and went. And, and as part of that blessing, God told him, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And I'm going to make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. Uh, an amazing blessing. But the purpose of the blessing, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And so we learn from that, that God chooses us and God uses us, but he calls us for a greater purpose. It's not just about us. Like, oh, I want to give you a great life just for you. No, I want to bless you to be a blessing. God has, has a plan to, to bring his, uh, his redemption to the whole world, and he uses people to do that. So Abraham and his descendants is, is God's choice to use to be able to bring his work into the world. And so he calls Abraham to move. But we got to follow. we got to obey. If Abraham hadn't moved, would, all, would we even be hearing about him? Would it have happened? No. So obedience kind of precedes God being able to use us. Sometimes he tests us. Sometimes he kind of puts it out there. And then when we obey, when we follow, then he's able to use us. But we got to do our part. Not that we earn our own salvation, but it frees up God to, it frees up his plan. Does that make sense? Uh, so that's where he moved to over there, uh, the promised land. Now, Abraham, uh, so kind of setting up this week, Abraham has a kid, Isaac, and who has a kid, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and you might remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. Those are the sons of Jacob. Jacob's other name was Israel. And so when we talk about the nation of Israel, that's a guy's name. His, his other name that God gave him was Israel. So the children of Israel, those are those 12 sons of Jacob. And through a, an amazing story, and we can't talk about it today, but they end up down in Egypt, down here, because of a famine. And Joseph is down there first. He's sold as a slave. He's imprisoned. He goes through a lot of hard stuff for 40 years. He ends up in a crazy way to be in, basically in charge of the whole nation of Egypt. This, a, a guy who's a slave goes to being in prison and then goes to being in charge of the whole country. It's a crazy story. Um, and he's not even Egyptian. And uh, Egypt at the time was the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful nation in the world. 
by far uh, at that time and uh, the most advanced in civilization, the most advanced in technology. And so Jacob and his sons end up down there, living down there in the land of Goshen, which is, which is down there where that star is. And, uh, you know, scholars have uh, said through the years uh, that that didn't really happen or that the Exodus, as we're going to learn about, didn't really happen. There's not evidence of Israelites being in Egypt. You might have heard that in school when you were growing up. The cool thing is that that has changed in the last couple decades and, and more and more evidence is there. And I saw this amazing, uh, amazing documentary. It completely blew my mind. Patterns of evidence. I bought the DVD. It was on Netflix. It's not on Netflix anymore, but you can watch it on YouTube for four dollars. Um, but if you're into this stuff, and this isn't a big part of the lesson, but I just wanted to share it with you because I love it so much. It's so cool. Um, so down in that, in that area of Goshen, that, that area later became known as Ramses. And so in the Bible, when you're reading it, it'll say Jacob, uh, Joseph went down to the land of Ramses. And then when it talks about the Exodus, which is 400 years later, as we'll talk about, it talks about the Israelites working in the land of Ramses. So scholars took that to mean the Exodus was, according to the Bible, happened during the time of Ramses. And there isn't any evidence for this stuff during the time of Ramses. Uh, and so they say, well, the Bible's not true. But the problem is, it, it's just a real simple little tweak. It's understanding the way that we communicate. When you're talking to a modern audience about a story that happened a while ago, you're going to use whatever the current city name is. Does that make sense? You're not going to call it what it was originally called. And so the, 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 the city uh, was something else before it was Ramses. And so they were actually there earlier. And so they've, they've uh, recent, in recent decades been unearthing these different things here in that land of Goshen. And they found in this Egyptian territory, they found a Semite, uh, a Semite home uh, that this is made in the style of of people from Palestine. So this is like Jacob's house, uh, you know, it, it, Jacob's dwelling or, or the Israelite dwelling down there. Th- this, this part blows my mind. There's a lot of Semite stuff there that they found, but this in particular, I just want to show you. So th- this is this uh, Semitic home. And then that uh, later is broken down. And on top of it is built a palace, but it's an Egyptian palace, but surrounded by all this Semitic stuff. And it's, it's a fancy palace like of somebody who would be really, really big, uh, a big name. And in this palace, there's 12, uh, 12 uh, porticos or, or 12 columns. And there's 12 graves in the garden behind it. And one of those 12 ga- graves looks like this. It's like a little mini pyramid, which is kind of interesting, which is that's what kings would have or pharaohs. But it's small. And in that pyramid uh, is a statue that's twice as tall as a human statue. And this statue is of a Semitic person. He has red hair and pale skin, which is how the Egyptians saw the Semitic people. And he's, wearing, he's holding this thing of, of, uh, of, of status. This thing means he has authority that he's holding, that, that little kind of paddle thing. Uh, and then he's wearing a, a, a multicolored coat. That's the part that blew my mind. You know, Joseph was known for his what? His multicolored coat. And so there's one of these 12. It's like this prominent person, but he's not Egyptian. But he's like as prominent as a pharaoh, but kind of like a mini pharaoh. 
And, and, and there's no, the interesting thing too is there's no bones in this tomb. And uh, Joseph uh, prophesied that they would leave Egypt someday. And, and he, this is even listed in Hebrews as far as Joseph's faith. That someday when you, when you leave this place, carry my bones up. So 400 years later, when the Israelites left, they took the bones of Joseph and, and took them with him. And, you know, scholars say, well, you, people might say, well, it's a grave robber. But scholars say a grave robber would never take bones. Bones they don't care about. They care about, you know, the other stuff. Uh, they leave the mummies. They leave the bones. The bones are in. So anyway, there's all this kind of stuff. It's really, really cool. And, and uh, so that's just a long plug for that video. I love it. It's really cool. Uh, another um, another video that's really cool, or, or this is a whole series on Amazon. Anybody have Amazon Prime? Oh my gosh, I love Amazon Prime so much. <laughs> it's awesome. We're doing all our Christmas shopping on Monday with Amazon Prime. But uh, so Amazon Prime, you can watch different videos. This is a series you can watch for free called True You, or True University. It's kind of geared towards college students. So. Uh, like there's a kind of this guy that's supposed to be the cool guy that's like talking to the college students and he's like cool, you know. And then, but then it goes into this teaching part and that's the old nerdy guy that's more like me. Uh, his name's Stephen Meyer. But it's really, he has a lot of really great stuff. But I just want to show you one little clip where he's talking about uh, evidence for the plagues of Egypt. Which, so so uh, Joseph and his brother, Joseph, his brothers, his father, all in Egypt, 400 years pass. The Bible says, like we saw in that video, that they were fruitful and multiplied there in Egypt. And that's a reflection back to God's promise there to Abraham. And it's also a reflection on what we looked at with the first lesson in, in the Garden of Eden, that they would be fruitful and multiplied. So they multiplied there, but they become enslaved. And we saw that already in the video. And so God brings this, about this, these amazing plagues. So I want to show you this video of some of the evidence of that uh, from Egyptian texts that date back to that time. Mentioning some other people's God, perhaps you're mentioning them because you're aware of the power of that God. And there is actually an Egyptian document that records in poetic verse a series of events that sound very much like the plagues as recorded in the Bible. It's called the Ipawar Papyrus. It's a 13th century BC document. Notice some of the parallels in this document. It's kind of interesting. You have in the Ipawar papyrus, mentioning of the river is blood. The Exodus, of course, one of the plagues was the waters of the river were turned to blood. In the Ipawar papyrus, there's mention that the grain has perished on every side. In the Exodus account, there's mention that the barley was smitten. In the Ipawar papyrus, we're told that the land is without light. In the Exodus account, there is the thick darkness that God caused to fall upon the land. And finally, there is mention of the groaning throughout the land in the Ipawar and in the Exodus account, the great cry. Okay, so this Ipawar papyrus is a highly suggestive piece of evidence, but whether or not it is actually a record of the biblical plagues, I think there are some things that we can establish very definitively. In particular, we can establish that the Israelites were in Goshen, in Egypt, at point A, okay, at time one, and time one being before the biblical date for the Exodus. Then at some time too later, about 1400 B.C. and after, they arrived at point B in Canaan. So if they got from point A to point B, and they were once upon a time slaves in point A, they were clearly liberated and they made an exodus. Okay? So that's our conclusion, that the evidence indicates there was a migration of the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan about the middle of the 15th century B.C., 
which is otherwise known as the Exodus. So what the, what the Exodus shows to Egypt, like he, he mentions, why is this, um, you know, why is Egypt talking about another country's God? Because gods were very national in, the old, in these old times. Uh, you know, it was, this is a God of this country or God of that country. Uh, so Yahweh, God gives his, his, his name to Moses and the people, Yahweh, I am who I am, uh, is the God of Israel. And, and, uh, but Egypt has all these gods. They kind of have more gods than anybody else. And what the plagues show and what the Exodus shows is that God is not just like these other gods. God is incomparable to any of these other gods. Whether there's any kind of reality behind those gods or not any spiritual realities, uh, demonic realities or otherwise behind those gods, God shows that he is in a whole other class. He is completely incomparable to these other gods. And, and, and he's in a class all by himself. And so... The education of Pharaoh is, is Pharaoh realizing that, oh, wow, Yahweh is the real God. And, and by the end, he comes to know who God really is. And so that education of Pharaoh is, in the Bible, the way that it's written in the Bible, it's kind of like a, um, a, 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 a prototype for everybody. Like, you know how the video was talking about Pharaoh's rebellion? And so that's a, we all tend to rebel like Pharaoh. And we all kind of have a choice with the things that happen in life. Are we going to surrender and, and go God's way and, and kind of submit to him? Or are we going to let our hearts become hardened? It's the same events that happen, same things that happen. Trouble happens to us all. But how will we respond to those things? Pharaoh becomes educated where he goes, wow, this is the one true God. And yet then still in the end, he rebels. Um, so God becomes known through this. And uh, and, and what, what the... Uh, what the, um, the, the, the slavery, in sl- the slaves becoming free and then entering their own land shows is that God has a people that he's chosen as his people on earth. But it's for the, the, for the blessing of all nations, eventually, for, for all nations. And so we're going to look at three things from this verse here. This is another uh, kind of piece of evidence. This is a, uh, uh, some hieroglyphs that show people that... Some people think are Semitic because their hair color and stuff like that, working as slaves there in Egypt. But uh, we're going to look at this one verse. If you want to turn there, Exodus chapter 6. This is kind of in the middle of the plagues and everything going on. Um, uh, and Moses is God's spokesperson to Pharaoh. And so Moses keeps going back and forth to Pharaoh and then to God and then back to Pharaoh and then to God. And, and again, there's a lot of parallels for how prophets speak to people for God and and how people respond and all that. But this, this, we're going to kind of dig into this one text here, what God says he's trying to do um, there with the plagues and with, Egypt, uh, with the, the exodus from Egypt. God says, therefore, say to the Israelites, this is God speaking to Moses, I am the Lord. That's his proper name, Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord Yahweh. So we're going to look at at who we are in this story um, from uh, three things that we're going to kind of illuminate from this text that we are, number one, redeemed that we are number two, no longer slaves, and that we are number three, on our way. 
like uh, we just sang about. And Lake did a great job of leading us. Uh, we're on our way. So we are redeemed. We're no longer slaves. And we are on our way. So the first one, we are redeemed. Um, anybody seen any of these videos of kids getting stuck in toilets before? <laughs> this poor little boy is absolutely trapped. There is nothing he can do about his situation. Uh, he has absolutely no hope of getting out of there. And that's, he needs to be redeemed. He needs to be released. He has to have someone step in and help him with this desperate situation that he's in. And uh, that's what a redeemer means. The, the, this is the, the Exodus story is the first time this concept of redeemer is, is uh, written about in the Bible. And it might be translated as kinsman pr- protector or family champion. Um, someone who's who you're related to, who's going to step in and help you. And and in a a legal sense, where a redeemer would come in would be if uh, you became uh, a victim of some some injustice against you, the the redeemer would step in and and avenge that or set that right. Um, If you became enslaved uh, because of of political situation or because of poverty, the redeemer could come in and, and set you free and set things right. Or a redeemer could provide an heir, uh, could provide if, if someone didn't have an heir. And you see that, you know, in the book of Ruth, where Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And so he uh, provides heir. He takes Ruth as his wife uh, and all of that. He, he also takes on the debt and all that stuff, but he sets it all right. That's what a redeemer is. A redeemer rescues us when there's no other hope. And in the Exodus story, God's redemption is comprehensive. God sets them free uh, politically, he sets them free spiritually, he uh, sets them free socially. It's all encompassing, and that's how God's redemption works. And why does God redeem them? Two reasons. Because, first of all, he sees their condition, he, he, he hears their cry, it says. He responds to the oppression. And so God knows when we're suffering. God sees when we're going through hardship uh, and God responds to the cries of his people. So God, God, it's because of their hardship and pain that he responds. The second reason he responds, though, is because he rem- it says, the Bible says he remembers his covenant. That God has the big picture in mind and he remembers his promises and he keeps his promises. And so God will act in our lives. God will act in our community, uh, both because of what we're going through kind of on a personal level, but also because of the bigger picture, what he's doing in the world and because we're his people. And he says, that, you know, in verse seven, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is what God does in our world even today is that God wants us to be his people. God wants us to be his representatives to the world around us here in South Bay. And God wants to be in our midst. That's why we come together on Sunday to have communion and remember Jesus' body and blood and to sing songs like we're doing and hear the word because we want to we be God's people within this community that we're in now. Um, but w- whatever you're stuck in, you, you might feel c- completely stuck in something and feel like there isn't any hope. Uh, maybe it's sin. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Maybe it's just life. Maybe it's just a life situation. And I want to tell you today that that's what God is all about. That's who God is, is he rescues us. He rescues people from situations. Sometimes it's different than the way we anticipated, but he always hears when we cry out to him and we respond to, you know, in his will, he always hears uh, because he remembers his covenants. Um, I remember uh, when I was in my senior year of high school, um, 
we had some friends and we had the, uh, we went to this lake uh, in Colorado and people were out on the lake and doing different things. And I decided to try windsurfing. I'd never windsurfed before. And I was able to kind of get the wind going and 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 uh, stays you know standing and 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 let the wind carry me it was really fun really cool but i found that i could really go well one particular direction that was the way the wind was blowing but i couldn't figure out how to tack back i could not figure out how to get back and so you know i, I was having fun for a little bit but then i get farther and further out on the lake and then i there's no i'm just stuck out there and i kept trying and trying and, but i was absolutely trapped for probably an hour Uh, out there in the lake absolutely helpless and i can tell you i was so happy when i saw you know the 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 guard the coast not the coast guard but the lake guard whatever they are you know coming out on the on the boat to rescue me i was like yes i needed redemption you know that's what redemption is all about is god helping us stepping in to help us when there is no other hope and so that's 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 our prayer for you. If you're new to God or learning who God is or who Jesus is, is that uh, you will open yourself up to being rescued uh, by God because he is our redeemer. Second thing uh, that we are as God's people is we are no longer slaves. It says in verse six, I am the Lord Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. This has parallels for us in the New Testament and in uh, as Christians and uh, Paul mentioned some of this in Romans 6. If you want to turn over there with me or you can just listen. Uh, it's a little bit longer reading, so I'm not going to put it on the screen. But in Romans 6, we, first of all, he, in our context, we are no longer slaves to sin. And Paul says in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like this, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know our old self was crucified with him. So the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So this is a big topic. But what the Bible teaches about baptism is that it's an end of your old life and it's the beginning of a new life. And it's God's grace at work in a physical way. It's not like there's something magical about the water. Baptism is being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. There's nothing, the Bible says there's nothing magical about the water. It's, it's the pledge that's being made in your own heart at that time, and it's God's grace working in your life to, to forgive you through the blood of Jesus. And here it says that when we're buried with Jesus, we're, it's like just like Jesus was buried and rose from the dead, we go down into the water and then we come up a new person. But there's another interesting parallel uh, that early Christians talked about with baptism, and that was to the Red Sea. If you remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and then they came through the Red Sea, and then they were on their way to the Promised Land. So uh, there's another parallel there to baptism in that we come out of our old life and being slaves to sin. And here it says there's a death. In in the case of the Red Sea, it was a, a death of Pharaoh's army. Uh, and then there's, they're on their way to new life. And so that, a new, the promised land. And so that's kind of what baptism is. It's that marking point. So if you've never been baptized, uh, or if you've been thinking about being baptized, I want to encourage you to go for it. Uh, to, you don't, it's not like you need to be perfect 
in order to be baptized, teenagers. I know some of you think that. Okay, I'm going to get all my life together and get perfect, and then I'll get baptized. No, you get baptized because you're not perfect. Uh, because you've been enslaved to sin, and so you need redemption. And so, uh, you know, you're there at the, at the water of the Red Sea, and God carries you through to a new, a new place. And he says in verse 19, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Uh, skip down to verse 21. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So after we're set free, so Paul's writing to people who've been set free from slavery to sin. But they were letting sin back into their lives sometimes or, you know, they were allowing themselves to get back into stuff. And that's a natural thing that happens to us. That's why Paul's saying, no, no, you've got to offer your bodies as slaves to righteousness. So it's kind of like the old uh, uh, the old song. You got to serve somebody. Right. Um, Bob Dylan song. You know, you're going to serve somebody uh, and it's either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve sin. But but after we're rescued, we. We surrender ourselves to God and we surrender ourselves to his leadership and his ownership in our life. And we become here, Paul says, slaves to righteousness. So we're the, Israel was not just liberated from something. They weren't just liberated from Pharaoh and from oppression. They were liberated for something. They were liberated for being God's people and being a, a witness to his glory so that all the nations would come to know who he is. So the same way we become liberated for a purpose. God wants to use you to do his work in the world. God wants you to partner with him to, to, to bring new life and new creation to those around you. And so we are, we are able to be set free from this stuff. And, and maybe you're still stuck in oppression of bitterness or rage or anger or impurity or lust or some of these things that can dominate us. And Paul says, be set free from those things and be able to be a slave to sin. Uh, instead of being a slave to sin, be a slave to righteousness. So after they, they, uh, they come out of, you know, this bondage and they, get, uh, the, they see the Red Sea collapse on Pharaoh's army and uh, they, they sing this song, this song of Miriam and Moses. And Mark read a little bit of it. Uh, just a, it's a pretty long song, but it's talking about all that God did with the Exodus and then all he's doing in the world. And so that story of the Exodus becomes the story that the Israel, Israel would tell whenever somebody would ask, what does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to be a person of God? That's the story they would point to. And so Passover becomes incredibly important to the Israelites. And, and, and the, the Red Sea and everything God did there, it's countless times throughout uh, the Old Testament. They always refer back to that, this amazing time when God worked and God moved. And so for us today, as, as modern day people of God, it, it, we should understand ourselves as still part of that story. And, and, you know, if you're a skeptic, you might say, why doesn't God work like that anymore? How come nothing modern is happening like the Red Sea uh, parting and these huge miracles and all that? Why isn't God working that way? And I honestly don't know. I mean, sometimes I wish he would, you know. You ever been like, God, if you just, if you just part the ocean for me or if you just kind of come down in the clouds, then I'll believe in you. You know, then I'll, then, then I'll really believe. You know, we, we kind of do that, but... but I, from God's standpoint, that just happened, you know, like that just happened a couple minutes ago. God worked in the world in these huge and profound ways that are attested to by evidence. 
But now he's, he's speaking to our hearts and he's working through our hearts through the Holy Spirit and through other ways. And, you know, we're just we're in between the trees. We're in a different place right now. God isn't working in that way right now. I don't know why he's God. He can do what he wants to do. But I put my faith in him still. I believe those stories. You know, I believe they're really they, they really did come out of Exodus and then out of Egypt. And, and they really did enter the promised land. And I believe that Jesus really did raise from the dead. And, and these things are true and they have meaning in our lives. And so I am no longer a slave to sin. I, I can now be liberated. But just like the Israelites, you know, after they if you if you read a little more of the story, right after they wrote that song and sang that song, the very next verse um, they grumble and say, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They, they said, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. This is Exodus 16, verse 2 uh, and 3. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You ever been there a little bit? Like, maybe it was better before I was a Christian, you know? Gosh, I didn't have to do this. I didn't have to get up and have a quiet time. I didn't have to say no to lust. I didn't have to kind of wait on God with a relationship and try to do it God's way when it comes to dating. Or man, was, Maybe I should just go back. You know, you ever have that thought? And that happened several times in, in Israel's history. At one point, they even say, when they get right to the promised land, they're afraid. And they go, you know, let's choose a leader and let's go back to Egypt. And, uh, you know, God calls that the Great Rebellion. So, no... I, after we've been set free, we're always going to be tempted to go back. We're always, but, but Israel gives us a good perspective of how crazy that would be to do that. That, that you know, we've been set free. Let's never, ever, ever, ever go back. Uh, the second thing we've been set free from is from fear. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that his, by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, the human default is to be held in slavery by our fear of death. We're, we're only here for the near and now, and here and now, and we're afraid, deathly afraid of, of something happening because that's all we have to cling to. That's kind of our default. We're held in slavery by fear. And that's a real tangible way it shows itself is by fear of death. And I've seen this as a minister. I've seen this in funerals, doing funerals for people. There's a big difference between people of faith and people that don't have faith in how they respond to the death. I'm sure Calvin has seen this. You know, uh, pe- people that don't have faith, it, it's, it, it's, so, uh, it's so consuming. It's so, like a lot of times they start fighting with each other. Uh, all this conflict comes in in the household or... You know, it just brings up a lot of stuff because people are so enslaved by this fear of death, whereas people of faith see it differently and they're not, they're not captured by that. And, and it says here that Jesus, by his death, destroyed death, by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. Uh, he became what Jesus said that he would destroy, he would crush Satan's head. He would destroy the source of evil. That's what happened. Um, in verse 16, it says, For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us. For he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's Hebrews 2, 16 through 17. You know, I am so grateful that Jesus knows what I'm going through. 
And Jesus is able to help me when I'm being tempted and when I'm being tested, and when I'm going through hardship, that I don't have to be a slave to fear. I can just go, okay, I trust you in this and I can let go uh, of my fear because fear can still I've been a disciple a long time, but fear can still get in and can still start to control my thinking. I can have really fearful thinking, uh, but I'm on my way, just like they were on their way to the promised land. We're on our way. And so on this way, Jesus is there for us. So God helps them when they, when they are fearful and they want to go back and we don't have anything to eat and we're hungry and let's just go back to Egypt. God provides manna every morning. Uh, God provides, you know, leadership and guidance by his spirit. And it's the same for us. Jesus said now, he says, I'm the bread of life. That he's our manna in the morning. That Jesus is there for us every day. Through the hardships, through the tr- troubles, through what we go through on our way, he is there. Um, you know, I've been, I've been kind of dealing with some anxiety myself and just fears and, and different issues in our family. And, you know, our kids are now all three teenagers. And uh, each teen has gone through a lot of different difficult stuff this year. And you know how, as a parent, when your kid's going through something, you, you feel it, you know. Sometimes you feel like you feel it more than they do. I know it's not true, but, but you just, you know, you kind of take that on them. And when they're little, their issues are kind of easily solved. I mean, not always. Sometimes they're big, you know, health crises or things like that. But when they get older, the issues are just bigger and, uh, and just, I don't know, just life, right? So I've been feeling anxious and I was praying this last week, um, praying through Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about your life, about your food, what you eat. Look at the fields. I mean, look at the, uh, uh, the flowers, look at the birds. And, look, you know, he's kind of walking it through it all that. If you don't know Matthew 6, that's your assignment. If you struggle with anxiety, read Matthew 6. What I was doing was praying. I would read a few verses and then I would pray that thought and read a few verses and then pray that thought and read a few verses and pray that thought. And it really just helped my thinking. It helped my anxiety. But the, my favorite part was when he says, do not worry about tomorrow. Uh, for tomorrow, will worry about itself. Because I do that, right? I worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, will worry about itself. Like it's, it's already worrying for itself. <laughs> and he says, each day has enough trouble of its own. And it's kind of funny, but I don't know, for some reason, I never really noticed that before, that Jesus affirmed that every day has trouble. Every day has enough trouble of its own, Jesus said. Okay, yeah, there is trouble in every day. And so I got to trust that what Jesus is saying in that verse is you're on your way somewhere. Seek first his kingdom. That's, that's where we're on our way. God's kingdom is already here in one sense, but it's also not yet here in another sense. And we're on our way to that future reality. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be taken care of. God's got you, you know, trust in him. And and so he is our perfect uh, manna in the morning. He's our perfect bread of life. He's our the water of life. He sustains us as we're on our way. And so make a decision today to put your trust in him. If you don't know God or don't know Jesus, that's step one is know God. Step two is trust God and you never outgrow that step. You know, every new season of life, you got to learn again to trust. Okay, I know God, I got to trust God. I know God, I got to trust God. I know God, I got to trust God. Before we uh, take communion together, we're going to sing a song, or actually, Mika's going to perform a song for us. She's going to come up. Uh, I know the teens know this song already, so teens, you sing along with Mika if you'd like. But the song is, is talking about this, what we've been talking about, who we are in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And how we're no longer slaves to sin and we're no longer slaves to fear, but instead we're we're a a child of God. And so I want to take just a minute to have uh, give you a chance to kind of reflect on what we've been talking about.
pray for a minute, write down anything you want to write down in response, and then uh, we'll get set up here, and then Mika will uh, do the song, and then I'll pray for communion. So uh, let's just take a time of uh, silent reflection for a minute on these things. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.